The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's continue to worship God by hearing from His Word. Our passage this morning is Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. Let's now give our attention as God speaks to us in His holy, infallible, and perfect Word. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Well, this concludes the reading of God's holy, perfect, fallible, inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, we live in an area that is more attuned to preserving civil liberties. Many of you have moved into this area for that purpose. Our freedoms are constantly under attack. and We need to be on the lookout for those who would threaten them and see to it that we do what we can to preserve them. However, wouldn't it be odd if we paid attention to civil freedoms while overlooking spiritual ones? Well, in Galatians 5, Paul is calling the Galatians to preserve their spiritual freedom. And in our passage today, we see two relationships where our freedom needs to be preserved. The two relationships where our freedom needs to be preserved. One is our relationship to false teachers. What should that look like if our freedom is going to be preserved? And the other one is to our brothers. What does that look like if we were to walk in freedom? So first, our relationship to false teachers. Verse 7, Paul says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So Paul says that the Galatians were running a race, but somebody stuck out their foot and tripped them. And Paul asked, who was it that tripped you up? Who was it that has now been a stumbling to you obeying the truth? And when he says obeying the truth here, he is referring to believing the gospel 
apart from any works of, the, of our own, we are saved by simply trusting in Christ. Who has prevented you from continuing to believe that? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. Paul knows the answer. He says in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, this persuasion from the truth away from Paul's gospel, which he received directly from God, is not from God who called them, who summoned them to believe on Him through the Gospel. So if it's not from God, then who is it from? It would have to be a servant of Satan who is perverting the Gospel. And this is why Paul says in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. They're leaven. They are an infestation. This is a proverb that Paul uses to refer to any sinful or evil presence among the church that rapidly influences the rest of the body. Like just a little leaven in a lump of dough quickly spreads and grows, so it is with these false teachers and their teaching. And so Paul is implying that this leaven needs to go. It needs to be removed. They are not to be deceived. And thinking that by keeping it around, it's going to be okay. Paul said this also in 1 Corinthians 5, that this is how we are to deal with the issue of moral sin in the church. He uses the same analogy here. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so we are to remove sexual, the sexually immoral people, drunkards and swindlers, etc., But here he talks about any doctrinal issue, a foundational doctrinal issue. Both are to be dealt with. Both are leaven. Now these are not differences of doctrine where you can still be a genuine Christian. You can still be uh, still within the house, so to speak, where we can deal with one another in charity. Rather, these are heresies that if believed without repentance would mean that you are outside of the Christian faith. You are outside of the church, such as denying the doctrine of the, of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, or the way of salvation. If there was a member in our church who is teaching this kind of false doctrine, then he or she must be put out of the church, excommunicated if they remain unrepented. If they maintain their false doctrine after being corrected and given a chance to repent. This should be our relationship with those who teach false doctrine. They're leaven. They need to be removed. They need to be put out. And that's what Paul implied in Galatians chapter 4. Now, Paul has hope in the Lord that God will preserve the Galatians and deal with the false teacher. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. So Paul has confidence, not in the Galatians, but in the Lord, that they will hold to no other view than the one that Paul is presenting to them. He believes that the Lord who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it. The Lord will correct His own through the means of His Word, one of which, of course, is Paul's letter here, Believers can fall into error, 
But God is faithful to send somebody to correct them, to bring them back, and to preserve them. However, the Lord will also deal with the one who's troubling them. That is, the one who has led them astray from believing the pure gospel of salvation apart from works of the law. Paul seems to imply here that it's a single person acting kind of as as a ringleader. But in any case, God will deal with them. So serious of a sin this is, that God will bring judgment on this man. Not in this life, certainly in the one to come. Paul is confident of this, he says. Now, one of the things that this ringleader seems to be saying is that Paul was also teaching circumcision. And Paul clears that up in verse 11 where he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul is saying that if he was preaching circumcision, that there is a way to be righteous apart from Christ alone, that you can add to that, that you could supplement it, then he would not be persecuted as he is now. But if he preached circumcision as or anything really is necessary for righteousness, then he wouldn't be persecuted. And why is that? Well, Paul says the offense of the cross would then be removed. The offense of the cross would then be removed. Man would still be able to do something to stand righteous before God. And we see here that the offense is not in the law. The offense is not in the law in telling man to be righteous. And here are some things you could do to be righteous. Rather, the offense is the is in the cross in saying, you can't do anything to be righteous. You need to trust in Him. The cross is offensive. You say that again. The cross is offensive. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians where he says, for the word of the cross is folly. It's, a, it's foolishness. What? You would actually believe that? You guys are a bunch of fools for believing that. How silly. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is offensive to unbelievers, but it is the wisdom and power of God for believers. The cross says, you are so wicked, so helpless, that Jesus had to take your place naked and shamed on a bloody instrument of torture. He was taking your place on the cross, which means that is what you deserve. Behold, this is your worth as a sinner. Before your salvation and righteousness before God, you simply do nothing but receive everything. From Christ is a free gift through faith in Him. Man doesn't like that. Man says, tell me what to do. Yes, I feel shame. I will take care of it. I will make this right. I will clean it up. The cross comes in and says, nope, you can't do that. You need to rely fully on another who will get it right for you. 
He's the one that lived a perfect life of obedience for you. He is the one who obeyed the law in your place. And you can't supplement that by any law keeping. You can't supplement that by any rule keeping. You don't add anything to that. Your services are not required here. And He stands condemned in your place. You cannot atone for any guilt, even in the slightest. Not even as believers do we atone for guilt. Because atonement requires eternal judgment. And only Christ took that for us. Doing extra Bible reading, more regular or longer devotions, not eating, withholding lawful comforts from ourselves, does not make up for sin in the slightest. Neither does it make you more righteous before God. You can do absolutely nothing to make up for your sin or to contribute to your righteousness before God. Now, if I stood up here and sounded like a Christianized version of Dr. Phil, it would be attractive to the flesh. And hopefully you all would, would kick me out if I did that. But it would be attractive to the flesh. These are the five things you need to do this week, okay? Here they are. Oh, good, good. Checklist. Okay, good. I can, I can be righteous. I can achieve this. Or here are three tips for your marriage. Here are three keys to evangelism. Not to say practical advice is bad. But to give this and shove the while shoving the cross into the back corners, onto the back burner, would actually be very attractive to the flesh. It wouldn't be offensive to the flesh. The self-righteous flesh is not offended at the law or doing things to secure righteousness or accomplish overcoming faults. The flesh wants a Christianized version of Dr. Phil. It wants to hear principles for living and what it can do to deliver itself from a guilty conscience. There's no offense in that. But there is offense in the cross. There is offense in the gospel. The blind, religious, self-righteous one will say, why do I need to hear the Gospel? It's all about the Gospel. Why do I need to keep hearing it? Just tell me what to do. Because they're offended at the cross. The cross is offensive. The cross is not the wisdom and power of God to this one. He or she has been blinded to the light of the Gospel he or she does not see its glory so as to be moved by the gospel to joy and grateful obedience to God. This is why things like circumcision and religious works and righteous rules are so attractive. And the cross, when understood, is so devastating to the self-righteous and religious pride of man. But Paul tells us what he thinks of man's religious pride and works righteousness in a shocking way. Look at verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That kind of sounds surprising. 
to you? Would you perhaps rebuke this if it wasn't in Holy Scripture? But, okay, I know I can't rebuke this, you're saying, but it does seem a bit extreme. I might not say that out loud, but it seems a bit extreme. I mean, what about loving your enemies? But Paul's wishing ill on them. How do we understand this? Well, did you know that Paul actually makes worse statements elsewhere? He made it at the start of this letter, actually. He said at the start of this letter, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Do you know what it means to be accursed? It means not just to lose one part of your body. It means to have your whole body thrown in eternal torment, body and soul, forever and ever, without the possibility of ever getting out. That's what it means to be accursed. And Paul is wishing that on those who would preach a different gospel. In wishing them to be accursed, Paul is wishing not for just part of their body to be cut off, as painful, as terrible that would be, but the entire being, body and soul, to be tormented. That is the worst thing that can ever happen to anybody. To be thrown into hell. This is for the enemies of the Lord who lead others astray from the way of salvation. This is not a personal vendetta that Paul has. This is for the enemies of the Lord who lead others astray from the gospel. So terrible it is to corrupt the gospel that the just penalty is to be cast body and soul into hell forever being tormented. And so he actually wishes something worse for those enemies of the Lord. And Paul may also have in mind Deuteronomy 23.1, which says, No one whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And so in a poetic justice kind of way, those who are attempting to qualify themselves through Jewish ceremonial laws, saying that we could be inside the assembly of the Lord, actually end up disqualifying themselves through those means. So kind of in a poetic justice kind of way to show that they're disqualified. In any case, a relationship to false teachers should be to remove them from our assembly and really see them as under the judgment of God, and rightfully so, unless they repent. The second relationship where freedom is to be preserved, we saw the first one is our relationship with false teachers is they need to be removed. We need to separate ourselves from them. The second relationship where freedom is to be preserved, or spiritual freedom, and that pertains to our relationship with our brothers. What does that relationship look like? Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So when Paul says that you have been called to freedom, he is referring to what he has been driving home in this entire letter. We are freed from the law as a covenant of works. That is, do this and live. 
do the law in order to have a righteous standing before God and be entitled to eternal life. Do the law if you want to avoid the covenant curses. If you want to avoid God's judgment, do these things. That is what we've been freed from. So that the law can never justify us and neither can the law ever condemn us. We are forever freed from the need to be justified by the law or avoid its condemnation by simply trusting in Christ. He has provided everything we need to stand righteous before Him. He has all the righteousness we will ever need. We simply trust Him, trust that He did it all for us. That's freedom. That is freedom. But freedom from the law in Christ does not mean freedom from obeying the law to live in sin. Rather, it's freedom to obey it. That's why Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh here is a common word that Paul uses to refer to the fallen nature, uh, to refer to the body of sin that remains in us. So we see here, freedom is not that I get to do whatever I want on the basis of my authority. I am the commander of my soul. That's not what freedom refers to. Rather, freedom is freedom to serve Jesus as the sole Lord. Not in subjection to the commandments and doctrines of men. And also freedom to serve Him without fear. Without fear of being condemned. Without the pressure to try to measure up to be righteous. I don't need to measure up to be righteous. I have all the righteousness I need in Christ. Now I am free to obey Him. Apart from fear. And what that looks like is to serve one another. To serve one another in love. And what that looks like is to keep God's laws. Verse 14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is true freedom. We are freed precisely in order to serve God in keeping His law, the Ten Commandments. Loving Him and loving our neighbor. Paul says in Romans 7, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we have been freed, not to serve our sinful flesh, but to serve the Lord, to serve His image bearers, to love God and to love others, to bear fruit for God. As Paul said earlier in Galatians, in Galatians 2.19, I, through the law, have died to the law in order that I may begin to serve, or to begin to live to God. When we die to the law, We are released from its curse. To die to the law means we are released from its 
curse released from its burden of needing to keep it to be righteous before God in order to avoid his condemnation and be justified. But because we broke the law in Adam, our first head, our representative, we all are born cursed. And what does it mean to be cursed? Being under the the sentence that the law has given us? It means to be in death. What does it mean to be in death? It means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And what does it mean to be dead in our trespasses and sins? It means to be a slave of sin. It means that I am actually not able to obey God. I am not able to love and serve Him. I have no desire to love and serve Him. That is what it means to be under the condemnation of the law. Because we have violated His law in Adam, we're dead. That's the status of condemnation. How do we come out from underneath that? We have a second Adam that comes and obeys the law for us. We have Christ that comes and lives that life that we should have lived and supplying all the righteousness we need so that we are freed then from the condemnation and curse of the law. And what happens when we are freed from the condemnation and curse of the law? We can now begin to live for God. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, a slave of Satan and sin. Rather, we are now freed from that prison to live. And what does it mean to live? It means to serve God. It means to serve one another in love. As the reformer John Calhoun said, we keep the law not for life, but from life that we receive in Christ. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 3, says that this is actually what true Christian liberty or freedom looks like. Listen to what our Confession of Faith says in chapter 21, paragraph 3. It says, They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust, they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, of sin, death, and the devil, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. We are free to serve God alone by keeping His good and holy law. Of course, we won't do it perfectly but we will begin to do it. And to not do this, our confession points out, is actually still slavery to sin. Now, there's many of us in here uh, who have had bad experiences. Several of us have come out of bad relationships, bad church experiences with heavy legalism, having your conscience bound to the doctrines and commandments of men, the overwhelming majority of us in here, if not all of us, have come out of some sort of legalistic background where we were beat up with the law or just a bunch of commandments of men which we knew were arbitrary and while we gave lip service to it, secretly we didn't we didn't keep it. And while God wants us free from these abuses of his word, yet we have to be careful that we don't end up setting aside His Word in the process. 
we have to keep in mind that the issue was with the one who misused the sword of the Spirit and beat us with it, and not the sword itself. It's kind of like the gun control debate, which I can I can talk about this in Wyoming. You know how it goes. Somebody misuses the, a gun. Someone misuses the weapon, right? And what happens? Well, we got to... It's the weapons' fault. We got to set aside the weapons. Take the weapons out of people's hands. We know that's not the issue. We know the issue is with the person and not the weapon itself. So it's silly to to say let's take away the weapons out of everyone's hands as if it's the weapon. But the same is true when it comes to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We don't blame the weapon. We blame the person who misused the weapon. You see, the issue is with the person and not the word itself. But the temptation is to say, well, it's the word of God that's the issue. And the reason it's a temptation is because it actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember the Garden of Eden? Remember what Satan said to uh, the woman? That's God. Did God really say you shall not eat from every tree in the garden? You see what he's doing there? God didn't say that. God said, you're free to eat from every tree that's in the garden. Look how gracious I am. But Satan turned it into, look how restrictive he is. The word of God actually prevents you from having freedom. That's the issue. You shouldn't obey it. God's not for you. He is against you. But true freedom is expressed not in fear, but freedom from fear by trusting the Lord and His Word. And in fact, the issue with those who abuse others with the Word of God is precisely that they are violating God's good and holy law. Things go bad when God's law is broken. And so from the freedom we have in Christ, knowing that He as our Lord has never done us any harm and has given us His very life, We can trust Him. We know that what He commands us to do is not for our harm, but for our good. So our relationships with others is one of not seeking how we may be served, but how we may serve one another. It's as Paul says in Romans 12, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing one another and showing honor, being patient when wrong contributing to the needs of the saints, seeking to live in harmony and unity with one another. It's not putting our own interests first, but the interests of others. And some of us may have grown up in homes where we didn't see this. Some of us may have grown up in a church where we didn't see this. But the issue was with sin, not God's Word. But what happens when we lose our freedom and come back under the law as a covenant of works? Well, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This verse describes the progression of a beast eating its prey. First it bites it, then it devours it, then it consumes it. So there's this escalating progression here. And this is figurative language describing the opposite of serving one another. It goes against each other. It's seeking to use and bring others down. And given the context here, this is actually an outflow 
of living under the law as a covenant of works. Living under uh, the law in a bad way. I feel condemned and criticized by the law. Therefore, I'm going to condemn and criticize others with the law. The law is pointing out my failures, and I feel that. Well, I'm going to point out other people's failures. I feel condemned. Therefore, I need to go on the defense. I need to seek to bring others down rather than build them up because I feel threatened by another's righteousness, which is more than mine. Rather than seeking to serve others in love, I seek to defend and protect myself from being exposed. I justify myself. I use others to get their approval of me. I need affirmation now from you as part of my identity. I want you to notice my goodness. I'm trying to establish my own righteousness, and I need you to help me with that. That's why you're here, in order to establish my righteousness rather than me from having trusted Christ and knowing I have all the righteousness I'll ever need and resting in that, seeing you as someone to be served and loved rather than somebody that may compete and take away my righteous identity. So when we live under the law, we get offended by others more easily. We get offended when we're under the burden of the law to have to serve somebody else. They're causing us more work. You're getting in the way of my rest and enjoyment that I'm trying to find in this world. I'm trying to escape from actually having to do the law because it's such a burden to me. So I don't want to serve you. Stop making me serve you. It's a burden because I have not found rest in Christ. But when we instead find rest in Christ, then out of gratitude for what He has done, come, we come not to be served, but to serve others because Christ came to serve us and give Himself up for us that we may live. And so true freedom is experienced when we set aside all false doctrine and legalism and anything that would hinder us from trusting in Christ alone for our full righteousness, and then out of gratitude to begin to keep God's good and holy law in seeking to serve others in love, loving others as we love ourselves, even loving others as Christ has loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help in this because we, uh, by nature, love our sin and we want to turn from our, from having to obey you and turn to our sin. But we ask you would help us, God. Help us to see Christ. Help us to know the rest that we have in him, that we do not need to obey your law in order to measure up, in order to have a righteous standing before you in order to avoid condemnation. That pressure is forever off. But because of that, because you have freed us from this prison, because you have freed us from our sin, oh, may we serve you and love you. Help us to do this well. We need your grace to do this. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, 
go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.